Children, if you would like to go to Children's Church, you may. We had a little different order this morning. We want you to hear the hymn of the month and sing with us, but we also want you to get to Children's Church. So... I think that's everybody. <laughs> Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 7 in your Bible. Acts chapter 7, look at verse 35, and read down through verse 43. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers. And he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make, us, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened, what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness. Was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. You were not here with us this last week or the last number of weeks as we've considered Acts chapter 7. We're in the middle of a context where Stephen one of the first deacons in the church, has been publicly used by the Lord to preach the gospel. He's also been subsequently accused of blasphemy against God and Moses, against uh, speaking against the temple, against the law. And as he was accused and then arrested, he's and taken, and he's on trial, and this chapter is his speech of defense before those who have put him on trial. So in the land of Israel during these days, the high priest would be the presiding officer, sort of like the Supreme Court justice, as he asks the question in verse 1, are these things so? Are these charges that were made so? And Stephen in his answering of the charges against him, begins with the God of glory and a story 
in the early part of his defense of God's presence and blessing of Abraham, and then God's presence and blessing of Joseph and the patriarchs. Then we've come to a portion of the chapter where the focus is on Moses and the generation that went out of Egypt, but it's especially focused on Moses. Moses uh, is born at a time when God is fulfilling his promise, and Moses, in God's plan, was the chosen individual to deliver the people of God. And I say the chosen individual, he's the chosen human being. Obviously, God is going to do the delivering, but he's using Moses as a human instrument to both speak to Pharaoh and speak to God's people, and really is what you might say is a mediator from a human standpoint. Uh, Moses, we see the context of his ministry in verses 17 and down through 19, and then his birth and his calling and his initial rejection. And really, as we come up to uh, verse 35, we've already looked at his calling, but I want to take a little time to consider how he was called, or at least who he was called by. Uh, verse 30, which we did not read uh, today, says, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. And I don't know about you in your Bible, but my Bible has that verse in uh, all caps, at least after it says, after 40 years had passed. It's in all caps because it's quoting from Old Testament scripture. So when the, in the New American Standard, when there's a quotation, there's all caps to help us to see that. So what we might not see, but sometimes is in other translations, is a difference between how that word angel appears. So in verse 30, when it says, after 40 years had passed, an angel. In some translations, it's a small a. In the New King James, and perhaps others, I'm not aware, but at least the New King James has a capital A. Okay, so after 40 years, an angel, either small a or capital A. Again, in the New American Standard, it's all caps. And so we don't have necessarily the ability to uh, see how the translators were thinking, other than we know that they thought this was a quotation from the Old Testament. So why would someone capitalize that word A, or angel, with capital A? And, and why would they do it throughout this chapter when the angel is mentioned? Why would there be a capital A? And this is what we began to look at. Well, the reason is that the person that is appearing to Moses as the story unfolds there in Exodus chapter 3 is very obviously God. It's very evidently God. Because the angel appears, but when he speaks, it's the voice of the Lord. And remember last week we talked about that word angel, and if you want uh, to look up those references, I'd be glad to give them to you. I'm not going to go back into the study of that word, but I'll just remind us that that word angel is not a word that automatically communicates a finite spirit like Gabriel, who 
is created by God and lives in heaven with God and then serves God occasionally by doing, uh, you know, whatever the mission is to earth or on earth, but he's an angel. He's a created finite spirit without a body. That word, when we see it in scripture, even in the New Testament, and it's the Greek word angelos, and there are times where that refers to someone like Gabriel, but it also can refer to a human messenger. So the word is more about the function of being a messenger than it is about what the person is. And that's true in the Old Testament as well. The illustration I gave was from Genesis 32, where it says the angels of God met Jacob, and those are those heavenly beings created by God who met him and were a signal of God's protection. But the very same word is used of Jacob's messengers, human messengers, that he sent to Esau. Same word, actually same chapter. But here we have a person who is a messenger, and yet as he speaks, he speaks as God. So as we think about the Trinity, we think about the fact that there are three persons of the Trinity, and we know that God sent his son as a messenger to this world, I do believe he functions in that way as he came. Now, Jesus is not called uh, in the New Testament in so many words, the angel of the Lord. But let's keep a finger here, turn back to Exodus chapter 3. Let's just read briefly this account, the initial interaction between the angel of the Lord and Moses. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was not, was, excuse me, was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. And then, of course, he says, come now, I'll send you to Pharaoh. And if you follow the context, it is chapter 3 and chapter 4, which is the call of Moses. Who called Moses into service? 
Well, it's the angel of the Lord, who's also God, who's also Yahweh. But he even gives his name here. Because Moses wants to know, in verse 13, what is the name of, what is your name that I might tell them? Verse 13, it says, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, we could get into the details of verse 14, but I really want to focus on that name because he does identify that as the name that he wants to give Moses to give to the children of Israel. I am. This is why sometimes in songs and in literature, you might see a reference to God as the I am. This is his divine name. In fact, he says, as he continues in verse 15, at the end of the verse, he says, this is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So to have that name, to claim that name, it's a divine name. Now, I said that Jesus in the New Testament is never identified in so many words as the angel of the Lord, and yet he does take that name. That name, I am, he does take. And without, this could be a message in and of itself, without going into all the passages, I'll just give you a few references. And some of it is a matter of translation, where you may not see exactly that he's saying it, but I believe John records multiple instances of him saying this in the context of identifying himself. For instance, with the woman at the well, she said, I know that when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus, in his response to her statement, said, I am the one who is speaking to you. And so what he's doing is he's identifying himself as the Messiah, and at the same time, he's using that name. In John chapter 6, and other gospels record the story as well, as Jesus is walking on the water and wants to assure his disciples that it's him, he says, I am, do not be afraid. John chapter 8, if you turn there, is what you might say, both in the context and the explicit statements, a clear indication that Jesus is taking this name, I am, to himself. There are two kinds of I am statements in the Gospels, and especially John. There are I am statements where he applies some truth about himself, like in verse 12, where he says, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. But there's another class of I am statements where, like in verse 24, he says the words I am, 
And there's nothing after that. There's no statement that he's making about himself other than that he's I am. So in verse 24, he says, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am and supplied by the translators is he, you will die in your sins. So the word he is not necessary, but they put it in and in they, they put it in in part because I believe they're trying to to show that he's identifying himself as the messenger of God. But look down to verse 28. It says, so Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am, again, he is supplied, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father has taught me. Now, just think about verse 28 for a moment in light of what the messenger of the Lord or the angel of the Lord does. He delivers the word of God. And he certainly functions as God's agent, mediator, you might say. But again, what is he doing as he talks about his ministry of speaking in verse 28? I'll read the verse again. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. So what is he doing? He's being a messenger of Yahweh. And he's using the word I am. Now, lest we misunderstand, unless they misunderstand what he's claiming, by the end of this chapter, he's going to say it again, and he's going to say it in such a way that it's unmistakable to the point where they don't believe in him, and they think he's uttered blasphemy. So look at down at verse 53. Surely the Jews say, you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now here's Jesus' response to that question. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Has he seen Abraham? Yes, he's seen Abraham. He's actually the God of Abraham, which is what he said back in Exodus chapter 3 as he's talking to Moses. That's what the I am said. And you know that the Jews understood his claim to be God here because of what he just said. They picked up, verse 59, stones to throw at him. They're going to execute him on the spot because of his claim to be the I am. And who's the I, I, I am? Is the angel of the Lord. Okay, go back, if you would, to Acts chapter 7. It is the angel of the Lord who appears to Moses to call Moses. Who is the angel of the Lord? 
He's the I am. Who's the I am? Well, we come to find out this is Jesus. So it's Jesus in the Old Testament before he ever came in the flesh. Of course, he existed. And as you read through the Old Testament and see those contexts in which the angel of the Lord appears, he's he's calling often leaders to lead his people in some way. He called Gideon. He called and spoke with Samson's parents so that they would understand the nature of Samson's ministry. But he also obviously called Moses. He's active in the lives of the patriarchs. But here, it's the angel who calls Moses, verses 30 through 34. By the end of verse 34, he says, come now and I will send you to Egypt. Okay, so when we when we think about what's going on here, this is a this is a calling of Moses by the Lord Himself. If we understand the bigger picture of Scripture, this is the angel of the Lord. This is Christ pre-incarnate. And then Stephen in verses 35 down through verse 43 is going to give a stark contrast between the stature of Moses as called by God and the sinful rejection of his leadership. A part of the reason that we take that time to consider the angel of the Lord and who he is is because in this section, the angel is mentioned again. And again, if you would read the New King James, you would see capital A, that this is not just any angel, but this is the messenger of Yahweh, this is Christ pre-incarnate, this is Christ in the Old Testament who has called Moses and is going to help Moses as Moses delivers the people out of the land of Egypt. Okay, you can see verses 35 and following that you're gonna we're gonna see the angel again. We're gonna see the reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. You're gonna see his activity in the life of of Moses and the life of the nation during this time. And the first thing after really what we're dealing with is somewhat of a translation matter, but some also of a understanding theology, understanding what is going on here. We have an emphasis in Stephen's speech on Moses, this Moses. He starts out in verse 35 with this Moses. Do you see how many times he uses the word this? Verse 35, this Moses. Verse 36, this man. Verse 37, this is the Moses. Verse 38, this is the one. And then the people use the words in verse 40, for this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. But who is the Moses that they are saying, that Sanhedrin and others were saying Moses, that Stephen had spoken against. So this is, this is really answering that charge. Remember back in chapter 6, where they said he had spoken against Moses? And what Stephen is doing is he's latching on to who Moses really is, quoting from the Old Testament narrative very carefully. Remember, he has scribes in front of him that he's talking to those who are steeped in the knowledge of the scripture. So he has to be very careful and accurate. And he's describing to them who this Moses really is and what Moses prophesied. This is, to me, this is fascinating. This actually could be 
verses 35 down through 43, the subject of a gospel tract. And I think you'll see what I mean when I say that, because what Stephen is doing is he's drawing attention to who Moses is and a prophecy that Moses made. The prophecy that Moses made is that there would be a prophet like him who would come. And of course, it's Christ. So you have you have Moses, the real true Moses. Who is he and what's he like? And what's his prophecy? And then Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And it's really fascinating how Stephen, and of course the Holy Spirit helping him, does this. The first thing that we see is his appointment as ruler over the people. Notice in verse 35, Stephen says, This Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. So when he says this Moses whom they disowned, if in the context of the speech you understand what he's already said, remember he told that story of those two men who were fighting and Moses was trying to break them up earlier on in his life. And when he tried to break them up and keep them from fighting, they asked that question, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And what's the answer to that question? Well, God did. Now, that had yet to be worked out, but Moses was thinking that that was God's purpose for him, and it was, it just wasn't the time. But that initial rejection plays into, in part, Stephen's argument here. Because if you're going to have a prophet like Moses, then would you expect that he would be treated like Moses when he first came to the people? You see what I'm saying? That there might be an initial rejection of Jesus if he's the prophet like Moses. And that's exactly, of course, what happened. So Moses is appointed to be the ruler of the people. And remember, it wasn't just that initial rejection. But over the course of time, you can see the people responding to Moses' authority. And by the end of Stephen's portion of the speech here, he's talking about that rejection. But I think in verse 35, at least, it's that initial rejection. Notice he does draw attention to Moses' position or his authority as ruler and a deliverer. Then it says, with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. I'm not going to ask you to turn back there, but when he's talking to the angel of the Lord, he says to Moses, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God of this mountain. That was one of the promises that he made to Moses so that Moses would know that he was going to be helped. In addition to that, he said, I will, I, this is the angel of the Lord, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of this, of it. And after that, he will let you go. He said, I will grant you favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty handed. So when it says that Moses was going to receive the help of the angel, part of it was the angel's presence. 
Part of it was the miracles that were done in Egypt, the plagues, and who said that he would accomplish that? It was the angel of the Lord. This is Christ in the Old Testament. Moses, remember, objected because he didn't think he was eloquent. At least that was the objection he was putting forth. But in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 12, he says, Go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. So he's making promises to Moses. So what I'm saying is in verse 35, when it says, with the help of the angel, the angel is making these promises. And of course, as you read Exodus, you see them fulfilled, including those things that the angel of the Lord did for him during that, even during that scene in the desert at the burning bush. Remember, he equipped Moses with signs, the sign of the water turning to blood, the sign of his hand going into his garment and coming out like leprosy or with leprosy and then putting it in and bringing it back out and it's healed. And then what's in your hand? Throw it down to the ground and it turns into a serpent and Moses runs from it. And he says, take it by the tail. And Moses does and it turns back into a rod. And so the angel of the Lord is giving Moses signs to then give to the people, which would help him show that he really was from God. It's very evident that God, of course, was with Moses. And if you look at the miracles that Moses was enabled to do and the miracles that God himself did, it was obvious that Moses had the presence of God with him. Again, context. This is the prophet who is the type of which another prophet would come. So Moses has the presence of God. I guess I just asked the question, did Jesus have the presence of God with him? Was he doing miracles? We, we can even think more about that because the very next verse is about those miracles, which you might call the authentication of Moses' call by signs and wonders. How do we know this man is from God? Well, verse 36, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So Moses' ministry of miracles extended beyond just that initial time in Egypt when he's showing the children of Israel that he really is from God, throwing the serpent throwing the rod down and it becomes a serpent, turning the water of the Nile into blood, showing them his hand leprous and then healed again. Then you have all the plagues. Then Moses leads them out and at the Red Sea, the Lord divides the sea so they can all go through. We know whose rod was stretched out over the sea. It was Moses's. God is helping him. This was a testimony to, of course, God's power, but also Moses' leadership as the one called by God. And so when it says performing wonders in the, and signs in the land of Egypt, study through the plagues. Amazing things are happening. But go beyond that and see when he goes to the Red Sea, watch that scene as God destroys his enemies. But then if you follow Moses into the wilderness, you see... At a certain point, they come to a 
place where there's water, but it's bitter. And God shows Moses a tree. He takes the tree, throws it into the water. The water becomes sweet. The people can drink. That's one of the miracles. God obviously provides manna and quail. And while Moses wasn't the one providing it, he's the one giving testimony to it that God would do it. And God did it. And then he struck the rock so that the water would come out according to God's command. When they needed water again later on, remember he struck the rock when he was supposed to speak to it. He struck it a second time and God allowed it to flow, but then he judged Moses because Moses didn't obey him. There's the battle against Amalek, where as Moses' hands are raised, Israel's winning. When his hands go down because he's weary, they're not. There's very obvious attention on this man and his mediating God's working in the nation. Numbers 11, there's a judgment of fire, and Moses prays, and the fire dies out. In Numbers 12, there's the healing of Miriam from leprosy. After she sinned and challenged Moses' authority along with Aaron, and Moses had compassion on his sister, and even though she had leprosy for a week, God did heal her at his prayer. There's the ground that opened up under Korah and his fellow rebels when Moses prophesied that it would. There's also the bronze serpent, which as God's judgment upon the murmuring people, the serpents came in and bit them. God told Moses to make a serpent, a bronze serpent, so the people could look, and if they looked, they would live, and that happened. So when it says in verse 36, this man led them out, we, we know that, read Exodus, you see him leading them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt. Yes, it happened there. Yes, it happened at the Red Sea. And yes, it happened in the wilderness for some 40 years. This is God's authentication that Moses was to be their leader. Obvious through the signs and wonders that he was doing in the name of God, prophesying in the name of God, those prophecies coming true. He was a prophet, but again, Moses prophesied that there was coming a prophet like him. And that's also made explicit in verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. So when it comes to the presence of the Lord and miraculous ministry, do we see that in the life of the Lord Jesus? Now, we can see it because we read through the Gospels, we read through even the book of Acts, and we hear testimony to it. And of course, we can see God's presence, His working in the life of Jesus. But here's a whole group of men in the leadership of the nation which refused to believe that Jesus was the prophet like Moses. Some of them actually recognized that he was from God, but they did not recognize or they did not confess that he was the Messiah. At least not as at the point of his conversation with Jesus, Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Peter would later say in Acts chapter 3 and verse 22 that Jesus the Nazarene was a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. This is the prophet like Moses. 
That's, I believe, in part why Stephen draws attention again, as Peter had before, to this promise that there would be a prophet like me. And, and the key thing in terms of the incarnation, verse 37, is from your brethren. You, under, you understand what I'm saying? In other words, that the one, the prophet who comes is going to be one of you. He's going to come from the nation. Jesus was very certainly from the nation. We also know he was virgin born, but he is of the line of David. He's a human being. He's the word made flesh and come to dwell among us. This is who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. He's the prophet like Moses. He came from within the nation. He has been raised up by God. God's presence with him was with him. He did miracles and signs and wonders. God was attesting to him. That's what, in part, what Stephen is drawing attention to, even as he's drawing attention to Moses. In other words, they say he's speaking against Moses. Oh, you can see Stephen saying, let's talk about Moses. Let's talk about what Moses was like, because as he's talking about what Moses is like, it elevates that ministry and what that would look like. And now here has come one, the Lord Jesus, who's right in line with that. And let's think about that for a moment, this prophecy, verse 37, that Moses made back in Deuteronomy. Stephen, excuse me, Peter had drawn attention to that back in Acts chapter 3. Let's turn over there for just a moment. As... Peter preaches the gospel in verse 13. He gives credit to Jesus as the author or the source of this miracle that has been done to this man who couldn't walk. In chapter 3, it says, verse 13, the God of, our, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. And he goes on to draw attention to that connection that they had with 
Abraham, the promises, and then God's keeping of his promises to Abraham. You know, the Jews were expecting a prophet like Moses. Even the Samaritans were. In fact, the Samaritan woman's statement to Jesus is directly connected, if you look at what she says, to that passage in Deuteronomy. I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. That's a prophetic function. And that's when Jesus said to her, I am the one who is speaking to you. He's the I am. He's the Messiah. He's the prophet like Moses. You see all these truths converging on this one person. When Jesus saw, or when the people saw the sign which he had performed in John chapter 6, the multiplication of the loaves, they said this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. John chapter 7, there's also a testimony that the people said this certainly is the prophet. So when Stephen draws attention to this prophecy, verse 37, Acts chapter 7, he's really drawing attention to the prophecy that Christ is coming and he's going to be like Moses, this Moses who was initially rejected, this Moses, who was to be a leader and a deliverer of the people. This Moses, whose life was attested to by signs and wonders. There's a prophet just like that who's coming. And Peter's saying he's come. And Stephen, by implication, is saying he's come. But let's keep on going. Look at verse 38 of Acts chapter 7. In addition to his prophecy of this coming prophet, who, of course, we know is Jesus. Again, focus back on Moses, verse 38. This is a hard verse to understand as you gotta you gotta pay attention to what it's saying. This is the one talking about Moses who is in the congregation in the wilderness. Okay, the the word there is ecclesia. It's the word from which we get our New Testament word church. This is not the church in the Old Testament. It's the gathering of people, the assembly. Moses was with, he was in that assembly in the wilderness. Notice it says, together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. And, and supplied here is, who was with our fathers. And he received living oracles to pass on to you. I think the last part of the verse is part of what helps us to see some of the context of what Stephen is talking about, because the last part of the verse, when it says, he received living oracles to pass on to you, what is that? What are the living oracles that Moses received to pass on to the people? Okay, I heard, I saw someone say the Ten Commandments or the law. Okay, so it's that context Moses is the focus, but notice it says Moses is in the congregation, that's the people of Israel, in the wilderness, together with the angel. The New King James has capital A. So he's with the people. He's also with the angel. 
the angel of the Lord. And then Stephen says, and who was with our fathers. And I do believe that that last phrase does have to do with Moses is with the fathers of Israel. He's with the leaders of Israel. He's with the people of Israel. He's also with the angel, the same angel who called him in the wilderness. He's there with him. Uh, In fact, one person in commenting on this verse said that that verb that's translated speaking or that participle that's translated speaking when it says the angel who is speaking to him on Mount Sinai. Now, I said, I think the context at the end of the verse is the law, but the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai when he called him. And he said, this will be the sign that I'm with you, that you'll come back and worship God in this mountain. So he spoke to him at the beginning. He spoke to him at the end. And when he spoke to him at the end, what was given to Moses? The law of God. Now, believe it or not, there's more challenges in understanding Stephen's speech as we progress on, but there's just challenges there. But what we do know, at least, is that Moses is acting as the mediator between God and the people. This is the one who was with the angel. He's with the congregation. He's with our fathers. This is the one who's operating in that environment as a mediator. The very one that God had chosen. Now, you think about that, and you think about his reception of the law, that Moses is the one who receives living oracles to then pass on to the people. This is the lawgiver. He's he's done miracles in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea, in the wilderness, God is attesting to his calling by those miracles. And yet, all those things, and he's the mediator between God and the people in at Mount Sinai. He's the one who tells them what to do and is the one who, of course, is involved in the very covenant that God is making with Israel at the base of the mountain. This is the man. So does it strike you as sinful when verse 39 says our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him? How does that strike you? In other words, Stephen is just stating the facts about who Moses is and his call of God, his relationship with God, his being authenticated as the the one that God is working through during this time to lead his people, and yet, and it really is a charge. He hasn't yet made the charge to the ones that he's speaking to, but he says, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. (laughs) They rejected Moses. Even when he's up on the mountain. Right? He went up on the mountain, he's meeting with God, and time is passing, and they come to the point where this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. Aaron, make for us gods 
and you read through the account of that great sin at the base of the mountain, and that was a rejection of Moses, that was a rejection of God, it was a return to Egypt in their hearts. They're rejecting God, they're rejecting God's leader. They're turning back to their idols. You might say in in listening, and if you just listen to verse 39 in the context, what insanity in light of who Moses is. What insanity in light of the fact that they'd just seen not long before God coming down on the mountain. Rebellion against God and against a leader who has been authenticated by God, testified to by God. It's just ridiculous. Shows the hardness of sinful hearts. And on top of that, you look at all the good things that God had done for the children of Israel from the time they're in Egypt to to take them out of that slavery, to bring them all the way through the Red Sea and to provide for them at the base of that mountain, all that he did all that he did to establish a leader before them, and still they rejected him. Isn't this a testimony to our sinful hearts? We are skilled at taking good things and receiving good things and then returning evil. When you think about what God has done for you in the gospel, what he has done for you in sending his son into this world to rescue you from your sins, the mercy and grace that God has shown to you and that he shows to you day after day, the loving kindness of God, the mercies of God that are new every morning. Why in the world do we continue to sin? in such a hard-hearted way against him. God has been good to you. God's been gracious to you. So have you responded with thankfulness? Or do you grumble and complain? Do you respond with devoted service to him? Are you lazy and inactive in the service of Christ? Do you worship God? Or is this boring to you? And ho-hum. And do you respond with, glad that's over, I can get to do what I want to do now. Do you respond with patience under the trials that God sends your way? Or do you complain and grouse about the difficulties that you face? I I could ask it this way. Have you received the grace of God and made nothing of the grace and goodness that he has shown you? In other words, these people have been graced. The first statement of the law is a statement of grace. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's grace. Deliverance. 
And it wasn't long before they started to worship another god and claim that that other god or those gods were the gods that led them out of Egypt. How often do we turn the grace of God in our life to an occasion for service and devotion? And even more to the point, have we received the leader, the Lord, that God has demonstrated clearly is the one that he will reign over humanity through? Moses and all those things about Moses, Stephen's drawing attention to that, and he's saying, Jesus is the prophet like Moses. It's very evident historically that this is the one, that this is the Messiah. And this group of leaders that are listening to Stephen will have none of it. They're rejecting him. And it's sinful rejection. It's sinful unbelief. And that's what unbelief is. If you're not believing in Jesus as the Messiah, you are sinning. And you're remaining in sin. And God will judge you. Even if that was the only sin you ever committed, it's worthy of death. It's worthy of eternal hellfire to not believe in Jesus Christ. So the gracious thing that God does is he over by the by the grace that he shows, he may send the gospel to you and repeatedly appeal to you to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And as he does that, that's a gracious thing. There could be a day that comes where that call will come no more. You will no longer hear the gospel because God will have said that's enough. You've hardened your heart, hardened your heart, hardened your heart, and you just walk away. I don't want to listen to that, when actually that would be the source of your eternal life if you believed it. Now, God, because the children of Israel here rejected Moses' leadership and repudiated him, and their hearts turned back to Egypt, God gave them over to their own desires. They wanted something other than Moses and something other than God, and so God gave them over to their own lusts. And that's really what verses 40 down through verse 43 are about, is his giving them over historically, both at the base of the mountain as well as beyond, even throughout their history. And Stephen really is spanning some history when he starts in verse 40 with the sin at the mountain, And down to 43, which is a prophecy that Amos is giving. The prophecy that Amos is giving basically indicates that they were worshiping idols all along their history. And of course, that plays into Stephen's argument at the end. What is Stephen's argument at the end? He says, verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. This is a long time pattern in the nation and what they're doing with Jesus right now is only further evidence that they're continuing to persist in unbelief and hard-heartedness and sin. You could ask the, the, the question of the prophet. Ask any unbelieving sinner if they've heard the gospel repeatedly. Why will you die? 
Why are you insisting on your own destruction through your unbelief and hardness of heart? Why would you persist in a path that leads straight to the lake of fire? It's foolishness. It's insanity. Turn to Christ. Believe in Christ. Turn from your sins. Find refuge and safety in him for all of eternity. Why did I raise my voice? Because God's word speaks, but sometimes it does take, doesn't it? It it takes a call of the gospel for someone to actually even give attention to what God's word is saying. Only God can do that work. It's not a loud voice. But if you're under conviction and you know you need to turn to Jesus Christ today, you know today could be the day of your salvation if you just turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ alone. Today could be that day. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, my words will fall to the ground. Your words never fail. And Lord, I do pray that you would take your word and convince us all of the truth, but especially, Lord, for those who have yet to believe, who have yet to turn to Christ. Would you show them, even today, sin, righteousness, and judgment? And would you show them Christ as the answer as the Lord to whom they must bow and obey and find safety, forgiveness of sins in his name. We ask, Lord, that you would do the work that only you can do, but we pray that we might be faithful in proclaiming the good news. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to 585. Stand together with me if you would.